is an Odyssey original. This is KNX In-Depth. I'm Brian Ping. In today for Mike Simpson. And I'm Charles Feldman. A judge has just unsealed the warrant that led to the search of former President Trump's Mar-a-Lago estate. It shows the FBI is investigating Mr. Trump for a potential violation of the Espionage Act and removal of classified documents. We'll go in-depth into the search what kind of defense the president could mount. First, it was COVID, then monkeypox. Now polio is back and might be more widespread than what we all think. Health officials say the polio virus has been detected in New York City's wastewater. This comes after it was also found in London's wastewater. Is L.A. next? Liz Cheney could be out of a job soon as a congresswoman, but her career in politics may not be over. And Governor Newsom might be thinking White House but a comparison is being made to another governor who got crushed when he tried the same thing. Author Salman Rushdie is in the hospital after being attacked on stage in upstate New York. Santa Ana winds are bad enough now, but a new study says they could get even worse. We go in-depth into what that means for our future winters. And have you heard of quiet quitting? It's a new term for doing a lot less at work, but that could be good for you. We'll explain. Sounds like an interesting and good trend. <laughs> Maybe the last segment will just kind of sit silently yeah. and hang out. We start we start there with polio and whether we could see cases here in Southern California. Dr. Peter Katona is a clinical professor of medicine and infectious diseases at UCLA's Geffen School of Medicine. He's done research, by the way, on polio with the CDC. Doctor, thanks for being back with us. Um, the uh, the health officials in New York I saw this morning say it's alarming, the polio they found in New York City's wastewater, but not surprising. Do you agree with that? Well, thank you for having me. Yes, I agree with that. We're we're talking about one case that occurred in somebody who had a vaccine-induced strain coming from another country. So occasionally there are going to be cases like that that come up from time to time. The question is, sometimes these cases are one out of maybe a thousand cases of polio that became actually paralytic and recognizable. What, what do you mean by a, a, sorry, go ahead, but I was wondering, what do you mean by a vaccine-induced strain? Well, there's two polio vaccines that have been on the market, the injectable salk vaccine and the oral Sabin vaccine. And we went we went with this, this, the, the live vaccine made by Sabin for a long time in this country. And it's at one point in that whole spectrum, we found out that the vaccine strain that you vaccinate somebody with can actually give you polio. And it happens very, very rarely, but it does happen. And the strain that was that was actually grown and found in the wastewater in New York is actually a strain that is derived from from a live vaccine with a live vaccine. And we know that because we can take the take the virus and sequence it and see exactly what strain it it belongs to. Are you uh, going to be surprised uh, if and when it's uh, detected polio in the wastewater of L.A.? I think it's possible. I'm looking to to add it to the UCLA's armamentarium of wastewater testing. So it it certainly is something that could appear. But, you know, you look for something hard enough, you're going to find it. But then you have to figure out what its meaning is. And seeing an occasional case that comes from a vaccine-derived strain from another country, since we don't use the oral vaccine here, um, it's going to happen from time to time. So it won't surprise me. This is the worst nightmare for people who may be vaccine-hesitant because, you know, they have, there's a lot of rumors flying around. There are many unfounded about some other diseases like the flu, like COVID. It's like, 
you give me the shot and the shot gave me the flu and this will only you know feed into that fear that is correct that is a definitely a concern but take the difference between polio and and uh, coronavirus you know Polio has been virtually eradicated around the world with a very, very few exceptions because we had such an incredibly highly effective vaccine to kind of keep you from getting the disease. We're not quite as good with COVID vaccines. So that point has to be emphasized rather than the vaccine giving you the disease. So if you had to stack these, because I know people kind of are doing that now in terms of order of what we should be worried about, would you put it as coronavirus first, monkeypox second, and polio third and way down the list? I would put it in that order. Okay, that's Dr. Peter Katona, clinical professor of medicine and infectious diseases at UCLA's Geffen School of Medicine, who has done research on polio with the CDC. Doctor, thanks once again. Right now, though, a federal judge just unsealed that search warrant that allowed the FBI to seize classified documents from the estate of former President Trump. It shows the FBI is investigating the former president for removing classified documents and for a possible violation of the Espionage Act. The Wall Street Journal is reporting the FBI recovered 11 sets of classified documents. Stephen Vladek is a professor of constitutional law at the University of Texas School of Law and is CNN's lead Supreme Court analyst. Stephen, thanks for being with us. Thanks for having me. So let's let's take the uh, this thing first. Uh, a possible violation of the Espionage Act that, in and of itself, when used in in the same sentence as investigating a former president of the United States, just sounds remarkable. Is it? Yes, I mean I think it's breathtaking. Um, the Espionage Act is a 1917 statute that really is um, remarkably punitive and harsh. Um, and it's also quite broad, and it makes it a crime even for individuals who are lawfully entitled to possess national security secrets, perhaps even including former presidents, to either not take certain steps to secure that information, to allow the information to be seen by those not entitled to see it, to not report uh, the purloining of the information to federal authorities. So, you know, there are a lot of potential avenues here where President Trump might be facing an exposure, even if he was entitled to keep at least some of these materials after his presidency ended. Was he just sloppy here and not, you know, crossing his T's and dotting his I's if he wanted to keep these documents for himself? Or was it just something that he didn't think was important enough? OK, I'll just take this with me to Florida. No big deal. Yeah, you know, I, I can't speak to President Trump's state of mind. I, I will say that there are ways to do this the right way. I mean, there are government facilities that are called SCIFs, uh, Secure Compartmentalized Information Facilities, which are designed to properly store with appropriate security procedures, national security information, and then folks who have the right to see that information can go see it. You know, I think that was an option that would have been available to former President Trump. And we're only here, guys, because clearly he didn't pursue that. Um, how much further this goes, what else the, the, the executive branch knew that led it to take these steps, I think is still to be seen. All right. So let's say that this is the the uh, argument that Mr. Trump or his lawyers will make something along the lines of at the end of the day, the president of the United States, while he's president anyway, is the final decider of whether something is or isn't classified, is or isn't top secret. And yes, 
there might be a sort of uh, perform, performer way of, of doing it uh, so it's on the record that he's declassifying it. So maybe he made a mistake in being a little bit sloppy in the record keeping. But at the end of the day, he still had the right to decide that all this stuff is now declassified. So I think there are two problems with that argument. The first is that right ended on January 20th, 2021, and President Biden has the right to reclassify all that information. So at least as of today, the final word on whether this information is or is not properly classified is the current president of the United States, not the former one. But guys, this is the key. Even if President Trump properly declassified some of the information that the FBI discovered and, and, and obtained in the search. The Espionage Act, the fact that that statute is in the warrant is such a big deal because it's not limited to classified information. It refers to information relating to the national defense, um, a term that courts have for the whole time the statute's been on the books interpreted more capaciously than just classified information. So I think the the fight over whether President Trump could have declassified some of this stuff and whether he did is largely a distraction. It's a red herring. The story here is what is the actual information at issue? And is it possible President Trump broke the law even if he was lawfully in possession of these materials in the first place? At least based on what we know so far, one federal judge thought there was probable cause to believe that there was, that he did. And that's a stunning place to be in as we, you know, have this conversation on Friday afternoon. Or President Trump basically saying, you know, after all of this, if they wanted these documents, they sh- should have just asked me. I mean, is it really that simple? Um, well, yes, but they did. I mean, I think so. There's fairly significant and, and, and substantiated reporting that this is not this didn't come out of the blue, that there had been a months long process um, that the executive branch had requested these materials to be returned, that they had uh, then obtained what appears to have been a grand jury subpoena, uh, a less coercive form for these materials to be returned. And so I think we have to put the search of Mar-a-Lago in context here as a very deliberate escalation um, by the Justice Department in response to what certainly appears to be some fairly significant stonewalling on the part of former President Trump when less aggressive, less coercive steps earlier this year failed to produce the right result. Okay, that is Stephen Vladek, professor of constitutional law at the University of Texas School of Law and CNN's lead Supreme Court analyst. Stephen, thank you. And coming up, we might be in for some windier winters here in Southern California, thanks to changing weather patterns. And taking it easy at work might be a good thing. We'll explain what's being called quiet quitting. Liz Cheney does not want to quit Congress, but voters might uh, put her out of a job anyway. Voters across Wyoming will vote Tuesday in the primary elections, and it looks like Cheney might lose, and it might not be close. Now, of course, she's on the January 6th committee and has upset many Republicans with her criticism of former President Trump. With us is Leo Wolfson, political reporter for Cowboy State Daily in Wyoming. And, Leo, thanks for joining us. Of course, the congresswoman has got to be aware of uh, you know the, the pressure she feels from the, the party and many voters in Wyoming, a very red state. So as for the level of self-awareness, does she know what's going to happen Tuesday? And this is just her way of, of going down swinging and setting herself up for something perhaps bigger in the future. 
Thanks, guys. Uh, thanks for having me on here. And uh, yeah, it's a it's a question that everybody wants to know the answer about. And we will we'll find out uh, soon enough, uh, either way, whether she wins or loses, I'm sure uh, she has uh, refused to rule out a potential run uh, for president in 2024. She's been given the opportunity to rule it out multiple times. Uh, and it's just hard to say what's going to happen at this juncture. A recent poll came out just yesterday uh, by the University of Wyoming, showing her 28 points behind her leading opponent, uh, Harriet Hageman, who has been endorsed by former President Donald Trump. So uh, things might not be looking so good uh, for her at this juncture, uh, but uh, it's impossible to say exactly how she's going to leverage this moving forward. But she's certainly leaving uh, the possibility of running for president uh, quite open. So let's go down that road a bit, Leo, because I know that in Washington, there's some uh, sort of discussion that she might very well want to run, knowing full well that uh, the way the Republican Party is currently constituted, she wouldn't have a chance. But it would put her perhaps in a position to be on the same debate stage in the future as Donald Trump. That's absolutely right. Uh, she, this, the, the stand that she has made against President Trump has propelled her to a national platform uh, that she never had anywhere near this level in the past. Of course, her father is former Vice President Dick Cheney. Uh, but to be honest, I think a lot for a lot of people outside of Wyoming, that was probably their lone connection to who she was. Uh, now she is known as you know the, one of the few people in the Republican Party who will speak out against Trump and his attempts to uh, overturn the results of the 2020 election and his alleged connection to the January 6th Capitol riot. So she has gained a platform and a recognition where she is a household name throughout the country, something she didn't have in the past. And she may not have the war chest of Trump or Governor DeSantis uh, in Florida, but that doesn't mean she couldn't uh, open herself up for a possible cabinet seat and maybe even a Democrat uh, president's office someday. You know, if she's running for president, she would most likely run as a Republican. She could go independent. Is there any possible way she could win a Republican presidential primary in 2024? Because the party has left her. Yeah, I'm not I'm not one to probably uh, give my opinion on this uh, due to my due to my job here. Uh, but I would say that she has a lot of work to do if she wants to actually have a chance of winning president solely based off how much money she has raised in her current campaign. Uh, she has raised about $15 million during her campaign, by which by Wyoming standards is a lot of money. That's broken records by far for uh, campaign records. But if you compare that to what DeSantis and Trump have raised, which is around $100 million, uh, for both, um, it pales in comparison. So she would have a lot of work to do if we're going to strictly go by money raised. And like you said, the Republican Party in polls consistently has shown that they're still supporting uh, a majority for Trump. I'm curious. Uh, I know that she spends obviously a lot of time in Washington, but I'm guessing at some times uh, she comes back home to uh, Wyoming. What kind of reaction do you know does she get sort of on the street when she goes out amongst the other people do they do they kind of you know i don't know boo her or do they do they shun her do they what do they do well it's, a, it's an interesting question you asked there because actually her public appearances in wyoming have been few and far between and she has made a point to not announce when she'll be in the state ahead of time so she's only really attended very small private gatherings mostly with audiences uh, that are clearly supportive of her uh, she has rarely been seen in the state, uh, really, since the 2020 election. She made uh, a few brief appearances in the spring of 2021, where she did she did receive a lot of um, outrage from people speaking against her. 
Uh, but she, it, it appears that the security concerns have been too much, or at least that's the reason she's given for her few ap- appearances in the state. She's been consistently flanked by security teams every time she has made even these private appearances uh, in the state. Uh, now Capitol Police is kind of her security security force at this point, which is quite interesting. Uh, so she hasn't faced the music, so to speak, uh, directly head on uh, for the most part. All right. Thank you, Leo. That is Leo Wolfson, political reporter for Cowboy State Daily in Wyoming. Nice to check in with Wyoming every so often. Yeah, it's nice to know it's still there. Yeah, of course. Never, Beautiful open country. We fly over it. We're the so. most populous state. They're the least populous state. It's a nice bridge, 1 to 50 right there. Yeah. And Beautiful area. It's kind of, we can look at it as a place for surplus people from California to spill over into. That, that does happen in that yeah. part of the country. Too Can't. much, as, as the locals <laughs> would say. This is KNX In-Depth. Brian Ping in for Mike Simpson. I'm Charles Feldman. Governor Newsom is riding high right now politically. The state is dealing with a big budget surplus, and he's implementing programs progressives find popular. Now, the governor also took out an ad in Florida recently criticizing Governor Ron DeSantis. Now, all that has raised his national profile ahead of 2024, as his name is being talked about for president if President Biden opts not to run again. Now, there was a similar governor, by the way, in the 1980s who had presidential aspirations. You may remember him, Michael Dukakis. Well, it didn't end well politically for him. With us now is Jack Pitney, presidential politics expert and political analyst at Claremont McKenna College. He just wrote an op-ed in The Hill making that Newsom-Dukakis comparison. Jack, thanks for being back with us. Gee, I, I don't know. I, I guess that's not good for anyone to make the Newsom-Dukakis comparison. What was the comparison you came up with? Well, uh, I wrote a book on the 1988 campaign, so I had occasion to uh, study it in great detail. And for most of that campaign, Dukakis looked really strong. For most of 1988, it looked like he was going to be the next president of the United States. Uh, but uh, I noticed that he had vulnerabilities that are similar to the vulnerabilities that Governor Newsom has to deal with, uh, uh, all of which stems from coming from a state in which his party is overwhelmingly in the majority. Dukakis never really had a competitive conservative Republican challenge, and neither has Gavin Newsom. And if he were to run for national office, He'd be in an environment that he's not used to, and uh, he'd be subject to attacks that he's not used to. So that's the big distinction between Dukakis and another Democratic governor who had much more success in a presidential race just four years later in Bill Clinton, because Clinton came from a much more conservative area. That's right. Uh, in fact, uh, Bill Clinton not only came from a competitive state, uh, he lost his first re-election campaign and, uh, and bounced back in the next election. Uh, so he had far more experience dealing with uh, conservative Republicans, deflecting Republican attacks. And we saw that during his presidency. He was extremely uh, capable when it came to uh, fighting off challenges from the Republican-controlled Congress. But, of course, as you know, times do change. And, and this isn't the same time that Dukakis was running in. Uh, if if you're Gavin Newsom, uh, I suspect he would think, if he decides to run, Uh, that abortion is going to be a big win for Democrats, therefore for him. Might he be right in that thinking? Uh, That's probably true. Uh, That particular social issue uh, has changed. Uh, The uh, pro-choice sentiment has increased 
uh, just in the past few weeks since the Dobbs decision, but other social issues uh, are remarkably similar. Crime. Crime was a huge issue in 1988. Even though the crime rates today are far lower than they were then, there is uh, a public concern about crime here in California, and uh, there have been very visible instances of violent crime in, in major cities, and they would be the subject of attack ads. To draw the uh, parallels between California and Massachusetts, those blue bubbles in the Newsom-Dukakis comparison, it's not a, a perfect uh, alignment because while California is a blue state, it's also much bigger. Governor Newsom likes to fashion himself as a head of state. He likes to call California a nation state. And even though it's reliably Democratic, he did face a very fierce recall effort last year. Do you think he's battle-tested because of that and he might have better prospects than Dukakis did? Well, it might have turned out a lot differently if the uh, candidate slate in the recall election were different. Uh, he was able to uh, fend it off because Larry Elder got in the race, and uh, he was so extreme, he scared off uh, a lot of voters and uh, increased uh, Newsom's chances of uh, prevailing. Uh, if the uh, uh, if uh, another candidate... Uh, uh, had come forward a, a moderate Republican, things might have been quite different. Uh, and in any case, that wasn't a head to head contest. Uh, so, uh, again, um, when it comes to facing a direct challenge from a Republican, that's not something he has a lot of experience with. You know what I find uh, particularly interesting? Here we are having this discussion about Newsom, and others have had discussions all over the place about other potential candidates on the Democratic ticket, even though. The current incumbent president, Joe Biden, keeps insisting he's running again. Uh, that's right. And uh, he may well run again. However, uh, he is uh, uh, the oldest president ever. And uh, we uh, have to consider the fact he may decide that uh, he doesn't want to run for a second term. Now, in uh, that case, uh, the leading contender to succeed him would be the vice president, also from California. Uh, but she has political problems of her own, and that situation is what has led to speculation about Gavin Newsom as well as other Democratic candidates. Jack Pitney, presidential politics expert and political analyst at Claremont McKenna College. Uh, Jack, as always, thank you. The Santana winds are a big part, as we all know, of Southern California. Every fall and winter, they bluster in and create danger as they are responsible for spreading major wildfires. That gets a lot of people nervous around here. A new study from UC San Diego finds changing weather patterns are leading more hot and dry Santa Ana winds in the winter. And if that's not bad enough, some atmospheric river rainstorms are getting more intense. Hey, we need the rain, but uh, not too much, please. Kristen Gerges is a climate researcher at UCSD's Scripps Institution of Oceanography and lead author of the study. So explain to us, uh, Kristen, how it works, uh, because what is it, a, a stronger jet stream, a heavier pressure gradients? I'm getting into you know, meteorology, meteorological you know, nerd stuff, but what is the reasoning behind how the changing climate causes more intense weather? Well, um, we've just completed a study looking at different atmospheric weather patterns that impact California, looking at over about 70 years of data. And we've linked different patterns to different types of in impacts, like you mentioned, Santa Ana winds, um, extreme temperatures, and um, atmospheric rivers. And what we found is that the types of weather patterns associated with um, hot, dry Santa Ana winds are increasing in frequency, while other patterns 
um, associated with precipitation, for example, in Southern California and the desert southwest are decreasing. Yeah, but why is that why is that happening? I mean, how is the changing climate causing uh, these more extreme events? Well, we found that there's um, geospatial differences in trends. So, for example, increasing pressure trends over land versus over the ocean then causes differences in the pressure gradient and changes uh, the flow patterns over the coast. So if, uh, let's say you're living here in another two, three, five years, what are we likely to be facing? Well, in terms of extreme weather, um, we find, so as, as climate warms and we experience more hot days, um, one effect of that is drier vegetation, which makes it more prone to uh, to wildfire spread. Um, there's also much research showing that uh, atmospheric rivers are becoming more intense as uh, warmer conditions allow the atmosphere to carry more water. So what we're expecting is more volatility in what's already a variable climate. Um, and so you're facing potentially, you know, one extreme followed by another extreme um, what sometimes is referred to climate climate with whiplash. Right. And, uh, you know, we say atmospheric river, that's one of our most reliable ways of getting rain, which we need so much. But it's kind of like, you know, uh, trying to fill a bucket and standing under a waterfall. So right, it's too, yes. it's too um, much. Yeah. Well, one, yes, one of the challenges is with this increasing volatility is for water management. Um, the idea is that more of our uh, water resources are expected to come by way of these extreme storms um, with more dry spells between. So it leaves more days where potentially you could have, you know, drying of vegetation yeah. and so on um, and then needing to manage these. Yeah, I, I'm, uh, I'm looking right now at pictures and videos of Death Valley in Las Vegas, and they are inundated with, with rushing, uh, flooding uh, water streams here in, in monsoon season, which has just been going nonstop for weeks. So that has uh, uh, what we're talking about now is to factor into that as well. Right. Yes, it's, it's definitely something that, you know, the, the southwest is increasingly going to need to manage as these extreme, um, extreme precipitations in the future. You know, I'm curious. I, I remember reading not too long ago, I was looking at some old ads. They were newspaper ads back at the turn of the last century uh, designed to get people from the East Coast to move out to California. And it was painting this picture of, you know, this very bucolic place to come, and the sun was always shining, the birds were always chirping, that kind of thing. And even then it wasn't totally true, but probably truer than now. If you were writing that kind of newspaper copy now, how would you describe California? Well... I live in California, and I still I still enjoy my time here. I'm not encouraging anyone to move by any means. Um, it's just that, you know, we're facing these challenges, and um, this is definitely something that we need to keep in mind, uh, you know, going forward. All right. That is uh, Kristen Gerges, a climate researcher at UCSD's Scripps Institution of Oceanography and lead author of the study. This is KNX In-Depth with Brian Ping, and for Mike Simpson, I'm Charles Feldman. Author Selman Rushdie is now in the hospital following an attack. As he was about to give a lecture in western New York, someone jumped on the stage and stabbed him. No word yet on his condition, except that he was in surgery. The suspected attacker has been caught. No word on motive. Yeah, a little bit of history here. The 75-year-old Rushdie wrote a book called The Satanic Verses, among other books. But he wrote that one, which was very critical of Islam. 
That led to a fatwa, which was basically a ruling against him, and a bounty for anyone who kills him. With us is pop culture expert Robert Thompson, who directs the Blyer Center for Television and Pop Culture at Syracuse University. Bob, thanks for being back uh, with us. Uh, I, I remember, and I suspect you do too, when that fatwa that I just mentioned was first uh, uh, brought out publicly. And I remember in New York City at the time, uh, there was great concern for his safety, and he was in hiding, and he had lots of security. And over the years, he's dropped that security. And again, we don't know yet the motive uh, of the person who attacked him, but certainly it has become part of the speculation. It certainly has, and I, I do remember it. And of course, uh, for a long, long time through history, uh, books uh, have been, you know, perceived by some as blasphemy and uh, 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 inappropriate, uh, and by others as important and significant. And uh, for many, many years, we've had book bannings and book burnings and all of that kind of thing. We have those things uh, to this day. We have those conversations about books uh, to this day. But when this came out in 1988, and then for the next couple of years, we generally didn't get that kind of response to a uh, a piece of literature. And of course, uh, in the first years, this was banned in uh, Pakistan. Its import was uh, or, uh, uh, banned in other places. Uh, and of course, a lot of people, uh, the Italian translator was stabbed back in Oh, 91, I think. The Japanese translator was stabbed and killed. Uh, there was a big attack uh, that was supposed to get the Turkish translator, ended up killing a lot of other people. So this book had obviously powerful kinds of uh, stories like this. But about uh, 10 years after it came out, that seemed to have settled. Uh, Salman Rushdie uh, came out of uh, uh, hiding to some extent. And now, what is it, 34 years after the publication of this book, uh, we now have this story. You're in Syracuse, not far from where this happened, a place called the Chautauqua Institution. And from what I understand, it's supposed to be you know, a, a rural retreat where you know, security is a bit lax. And you would think that uh, that, that might have provided somebody an opportunity, because after all, there is a $3 million bounty on his head. Right, and, and it is uh, true. It's not uh, right next door here, but it's uh, out west a bit uh, from here. And Chautauqua, of course, has got a long-storied uh, tradition as this place where people talked about books and art and uh, all that kind of thing uh, back to the 19th century. But it does bring, once again, this idea uh, about security in uh, live events. Now, in the case of uh, Salman Rushdie, clearly this is somebody with a long history of uh, uh, the potential need for security. But even, and this sounds absurd to tie this into the story of uh, uh, the Oscars, but even what happened with uh, Will Smith's attack on Chris Rock, I think, once again, gave us this idea that the old days of simply having people get up on stages and not having a uh, much more careful way in which they're protected uh, is, an, is an old order that I think we may have emerged from. I think a lot more care is going to have to be taken, and there might be some significant prices to pay for that. Yeah, and, I, and I'm glad you, you brought that up, and I do want to go down that road in a second, but I do think it's also important because I don't want to get ahead of the facts yet in the story. And and I do want to emphasize two things. One, we don't yet know the motive of the person That's who right. attacked uh, uh, Mr. Rushdie. And the other, uh, I do remember also very clearly at the time that this fatwa was issued by the uh, mullahs in Iran, 
that uh, mainstream uh, Islamic organizations all over the world condemned that. Uh, and I do want to make that clear. This was considered a very radical uh, decision from the people who were running at the time, the Ayatollah Khomeini, among others, uh, Iran. But you, you did raise the, this interesting uh, analogy to the Academy Awards and the, uh, the attack on, on Will Smith. And, and yeah, I mean, uh, I know we've had comedians on this show since then who said that they're afraid that now they are going to be subject to attack because that kind of invisible fourth wall has now disappeared between the audience and somebody on stage. Now you have this, regardless of what the motivation is. I mean, what does this say for uh, people who do do public speaking, performing in this country now? Well, I think it, it uh, obviously people who do do public speaking and performing are going to be concerned about that. And, and you know, this goes back a long way. Uh, 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 the whole uh, uh, attack on uh, uh, assassination of Abraham Lincoln, of course, took place in a theater. If I recall my uh, uh, schooling correctly, after Lincoln was assassinated, didn't John Wilkes Booth jump onto the stage? Yes, he uh, sure did. Yeah. Uh, <laughs> afterwards. So uh, this is this is not something new, but the the attack on on Chris Rock. And again, that was a slap. They've kind of uh, talked or whatever uh, that I don't want to even come close to comparing that to what happened uh, here that we're talking about. But, uh, you know, you don't expect in a an audience of the uh, of the Oscars, which, of course, is a very specific audience. It's not easy to get into that for a guy like Chris Rock to be attacked. And nevertheless, uh, that happened. And here, of course, at Chautauqua, one might have expected significantly more uh, security. And who knows? I mean, this could, uh, I don't know, make more searches in every venue as people uh, uh, go into it. It could mean some kind of protective, I don't know what, between uh, the stage and the audiences. But uh, we've had enough of these things that I think anybody who who is running these venues, if for no other reason, for fear of litigation, is going to have to be asking these questions uh, pretty seriously. Mm-hmm. Robert Thompson, pop culture expert and director of the Blyer Center for Television and Pop Culture at Syracuse. Bob, thank you. Did you cut out of work early to get a head start on your weekend? Or are you at work right now? Maybe maybe not doing a whole lot, just kind of, you know, taking it easy. Well, that used to be called slacking off, but there's a new term for those who want to coast at work. It's called quiet quitting. It's about changing an all-out commitment to one's career. Amy Morin is a psychotherapist based in the Florida Keys. So is this something you know, fairly new, Amy? Is it something that's kind of taken off in this work-from-home era or what? Well, it's certainly something that has taken off now that so many people have started working from home. And it's it's not necessarily slacking off. It's more like the pendulum's just starting to swing more in like a happy medium area because for so long, I think people were working such long hours, answering emails all day and all night. And now we're starting to set boundaries and say, you know, I don't need to do all these extra things in order to do well at my job. Yeah, but what happens when the employer says, yes, you do? You know, that's a conversation to have and to say, you know, like, what what are the expectations and to make sure everybody's clear if your boss emails you on a Saturday, are you supposed to reply in a, a certain amount of time? Are you expected to get so much done? I think in today's world, we should be having these conversations about what you're willing and not willing to do. So many people 
have been doing those extra things and then they feel like, gee, what am I doing this for? I don't have a life anymore because I'm responding to emails or I'm doing 75 hours worth of work and pretending like I'm squeezing it into a 40 hour week. Yeah, well, the term includes the word quitting. So is there something terminal to this where you know, somebody has just decided, OK, well, I'm going to be moving on eventually. I'm just going to ring this for all it's worth in the meantime. That's what it sounds like, right? When we say quiet quitting, it sort of sounds like, well, I'm just going to uh, do the bare minimum until I get fired. But it doesn't necessarily have to mean that. For some people, it just means I'm going to quit going above and beyond, doing all the extras and basically killing myself for my employer. So if some, if an, an employer finds out that an employee is quietly quitting, can they quietly not pay them as much? <laughs> well, you know, the goal would be that we would look at it and say that's a good that employees do better. They're more productive when they're allowed to have a life outside of work. And we want people to set healthy limits and to have healthy boundaries on what they're willing and not willing to do. So my hope would be that employers would think, oh, this is a, a healthy thing. And when our employees take care of themselves, they're able to stand the test of time. They're less likely to burn out. And we know that when people are working uh, incredible amounts of hours and they're putting everything they have into work, you just can't sustain that over the long term and not and if you try to, you're not going to stay very mentally healthy. Does this tie into the whole great resignation? Because it used to be it would be normal to stay at the same employer for you know, 30, 40 years and say, OK, you're set. You, you collect your salary, you do your job, maybe get some accolades along the way. But now, you know, it's just uh, you spend a few years at one place and then you just kind of see if the grass is greener somewhere else. You change the scenery. Does it fold into that? You know, it can, because we certainly know right now that uh, employees have choices. You don't have to stick with the same employer for 40 years like your grandparents may have. Instead, you can look around and say, what offers me the best work-life balance? And when it comes to personal happiness and satisfaction in life, it's not always about the money. That sometimes a, a much shorter commute will make you way happier than a $10,000 raise if you're commuting an hour each way. That takes up a lot of your time. So you might be happier to have a job that works from home, even if you make less money. So I think right now is a great time for employees to be thinking just about that, about how much time, effort, and uh, how much do they really want to give to an employer. And if you're giving more than you want, maybe it is time to look around. Well, of course, it's one thing, I suppose, to uh, sort of rebel as an employee about you know answering maybe an email on a weekend if you're normally working Monday through Friday. But but there are some people who are engaged in the so-called quiet quitting who are doing it while they're actually in an office at work. They're just not putting a lot of effort into what they're doing, right? Yeah. And, you, you know, that's not what you want to do. You don't want to be just showing up physically at work and then playing solitaire all day or running your own business. or People still play solitaire? <laughs> right, you know, whatever it is people do, scrolling through social media apps all day. So it's not just about just showing up physically and, and loafing and pretending like you do your job, because that should probably get you fired at some point And it's stealing from your employer. But instead of could just be about setting healthier boundaries about knowing, okay, this is what, uh, this is what I want to do, but how am I going to balance this with making sure that I do have time to have a personal life too? All right. That's Amy Moore and psychotherapist based in the Florida Keys and talking about the concept of quiet quitting. And Amy, thank you for joining us and for uh, giving your 100% uh, in that interview, not quite quitting with us. Uh, Charles, we appreciate that. So. Uh, I've quietly quit.
Yeah, he's he's checked out already. So, yeah, I see. So What's well, Friday? I'm not, uh, I'm not good, saying good anything more. Week to have, you know, it's Friday. A nice time to you know have that conversation. A lot of people are probably listening to us in their cars. They're well on their way out of work, off to their weekend destination. So they're like nodding their heads in a, agreement. Saying, "I've quietly quit. I'm not saying anything." Yeah, it <laughs> seems to be working. Okay, this is this has been KX and Def-